Hey everybody, this is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. I'm coming at you straight from the perch. And before we get started this week, if you haven't listened to the previous Sunday episode, I think I may have skipped an episode accidentally in between. If I did, I'm sorry. I was planning on doing a thing on Freak Angels, which might, which may or may not be sitting on my desktop right now. I'm going to investigate that afterwards. Um, if... If I am missing an episode in the general flow of thing, I will certainly upload it and um, or re-upload it and um, release it as like a bonus, like a midweek bonus thing. But um, so look forward to that. But the thing that I would super encourage you to listen to is to go listen to the Attack on Titan episode that I did probably about two weeks ago now, and that is a two-hour-long meditation on friggin' Attack on Titan, because I shotgunned that show in, like, three weeks, um, and I'm insane, but definitely go listen to that. But today, what we are going to be talking about is a little show called Orbital Children.
So before we get into Orbital Children proper, I want to preference this with something that I think is important to thinking about this show. And that is the idea of commercialization and the monetization of art. Because the bottom line is any popular thing, or even unpopular thing, quite frankly, that you have seen and loved had been served to you in a way that gets money out of you somehow. If you've watched it on YouTube for free, nothing that's free is really free. There's ad dollars swirling around you in every in every case, in especially YouTube, but everywhere. Um, if you watch it on Netflix, you're paying soon, uh, starting I think March 7th, $15 for the pleasure. Um, and that has, especially on Netflix, determined the way shows have been made. Now, there are always exceptions to the rule. There are always things that Netflix doesn't really control. Like, say, one, I think one of the seasons of Castlevania was a total of four episodes, and another one was, like, a total of, like, six. So, it, there's, like, push and pull there of what it means, of what maybe a full season of something means, of what maybe a full series looks like. But, by and large... Netflix does its best to get the rights to things or produce things that are can be serialized. If you look at um, the early Marvel shows, the like the Defenders slate of Marvel shows that was that it's still on Netflix. You can still go watch it, but got cut off at the knees. And I've talked about this before on the podcast um, by the inception of Disney Plus. Those shows are all very clearly, like, you watch the first season, you want to see the second season, the second season, just like the first season, will only be on Netflix. So you, so Netflix, Netflix has hopefully got you hooked and you're coming back and you're paying for the subscription. Usually people forget about the subscription and they just pay for it until the next year and then they've got a whole year worth of, like, at that point, probably, like, Eight to twelve dollars a month out of you, and the long and short of it is, is that's the way Netflix monetizes the form of art it produces, which is live action animated TV, basically on demand TV, basically. That's why I saw what that's why I saw ultimately that um, Orbital Boys and Girl that Orbital Children is so interestingly unique as a property for Netflix to... And I'm not super sure... I think Netflix Netflix is certainly on as a producer because it's done with, um, with Production H, which Production Plus H, um, which has been well-known to... Um, actually, Avex Pictures produced this. So they may have bought just bought the rights to it, but the long and short of it is that it it functions much less like a wholly unique like a Netflix thing does. I'm also watching right now Ozark, and Ozark has been running for four seasons, and 
it is this big Netflix drama about um, money laundering for drug kingpins, basically. And it's clearly built to keep you hooked and get you from season to season, from episode to episode. Orbital Children isn't. Orbital Children's job is to get you from episode 1 to episode 6. This is a 6 episode thing. If you were really determined, you could watch this in a day. Seriously. You could just binge the whole thing in a day. And what that means with the show is it has a much different pace. It has a much different feel. It. I haven't read all the way through the... Um, my anime list, um, through the my anime list of entry, but my gut feeling just because of the style and the kinds of things that it deals with in the story, which we'll get to in a second, is that it is kind of, it is in some way related to the show Denocoil, and my suspicions were kind of confirmed with that because they, actually let me click on the AVEX pictures and see what else we got here. Um, my confessions were, my suspicions were confirmed with that because it was, after I finished the show, actually, I was like, backed out of its page and there it was, Denocoil staring me in the face. Not, not dubbed. I was not that lucky. And I owned Denocoil actually on DVD in two separate, um, in two separate DVDs, but my point is that someone at Netflix made a deal somewhere, <laughs> and now these two very good shows, the, the two very good shows, are on Netflix, <laughs> and that's not super uncommon. If you look at um, a lot of different things, you'll notice that like, oh, this came on. And then a couple weeks later, this came on and it's from the same studio or the same creative team or the same original author. And there's some, there's usually some synergy there. I just made the synergy weaving sign with my hand. But the, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that is that Netflix is very aware of how niche fandoms consume content which means if you like something from a creator you'll most likely like another thing from a creator for example if you've seen bell you should which i did a podcast about a couple weeks ago um the new momoro hosted a movie bell you should probably also go watch summer wars <laughs> you should you should do that for yourself and this is A, smart, and B, well, just A, smart, because it, it A, keeps people on the service, it gives people an instant answer to what else has it has some combination of these people made that I can go watch right now, and it keeps people on the service for longer. What surprised me so much about Orbital Children um, is that they, there is no, there is really no 
grasping for a second for a second order of episodes. It, it you're getting what you get what you get. You are kind of left you're left with you're left with a night with a nice end to the show that isn't so that isn't so open ended that they could just go back to it. Of course anybody can go back to anything that's neither here nor there. You can always kind of find a way, even if you can't find a way, trust me. But it's It's way, it's way, it's way, it's a way cleaner cutoff than, say, something like Pacific Rim the Black, another Netflix exclusive anime that, CG anime, of all things, and this is nice because it's not CG, um, that I covered that was so expecting to get a second season, and as far as I know, a second one hasn't been announced. Because that's the way people function with Netflix shows. Even the live-action Cowboy Bebop, another thing I covered on this podcast, you can go find it in the feed, very much was like, oh, you think you're done? No, we got we got a whole other season of shenanigans. Let's go! And that's how they introduced Ed and shot, and shot the final nail in the coffin that also went straight through their foot. Um, but the... The probably the biggest reason that this show did does does what it does in terms of like not allowing a seasonal like a seasonal serialization to occur is probably because it really wants to have a conversation about a specific subject matter, and it it, it branches off a little bit in like key moments to like tell you like we know what's up. Or the, the people responsible for this know what's up. But it also is very focused on the idea of the potential for technology and the potential for the prevalence of AI. It takes place in the year 2045. And it follows kids. Um, the main two are a kid named Toya and a kid named Konoha. And Konoha and Toya are both, I believe, about maybe 15, 14. And they are the last two living children who were originally born in space. And there were originally 10 kids who were first born in outer space. And the previous eight died. Konoha and Toya, by the way, spoiler alert for this show. If you want to go watch it, I highly suggest it. Go watch it right now on Netflix. Come back, listen to this. Toya and Konoha, along with the other ten kids, to be clear, were had this implant put into their brains. Um, it was designed by a, a by an a, by an artificial intelligence that they call Seven, and the the idea as they present it is that the, every significant like artificial intelligence is given a number. So there's one through seven and then seven happens and seven is like this 
incredible um, feat of artificial intelligence. And But they also have, like, less powerful artificial intelligence system that, like, run their lives and, like, do medical shit and all this other stuff. In fact, there's a, um, there's, like, a ship assistant slash tour guide named Twelve, who is an artificial intelligence, on, um, on the spaceship that, um, this show's version of Google, Deagle, owns and op owns and operates and maintains. But the thing is that the reason why they're owning and operating it and maintaining it, it be it's for the express purpose of Konoha and Toya to continue to live there, basically. Like they are they are kind of one part one part um tour guide, one part zoo zoo animal, one part like prisoner, essentially. Because they can't go back down to Earth. Because they can't handle Earth's gravity because they were born on the moon. And so they, their bodies have no concept of what Earth's gravity feels like. And everybody's like, uh, the, there's two ways this is going to go. It's either they're going to get out and they're going to like be tired all the time and then they'll be fine after like a couple months. Or they'll get out and their bones will turn to dust. And we here at NASA, not the NASA I'm about to talk about, um, at like, they have a international organization that's like the UN called UN2. We here at UN2 are pretty sure that their bones will just turn into dust and blow in the wind, blow away in the wind as soon as they touchdown like not great so until we can figure out how to get them down here we need to keep them up there <laughs> for their own safety but also um deagle steps in essentially this world's google and says like we'll we'll fund this we'll fund this for like some like shout outs by like one of the two of them at once every like three months because they are determined to be, like, the future of humanity in, like, an odd but understandable way. And the... The long-term effects of that is there are these two kids essentially stuck on a space station for their entire lives, and they have a caretaker, somebody who is supposed to be... who was who was hired to be the kind of, like, human aspect on this, on this big floating space vessel, so that they weren't, they weren't just stuck with, um, 12, the, like, deeply, the all, the altogether deeply intelligent, deeply stupid AI <laughs> that runs, that runs, like, the Deagle system on the space station. Um, there's also... Um, Mayor Sagami, who is, like, the head of the, who's the mayor of this quote-unquote space hotel, and it's also Toya's uncle, um, and they, but they essentially live there with this woman named Nasa, who you meet, and she's revealed to be, like, 
all at once their caretaker, their medical, their like medical overseer, and they're like they're like cat wrangler essentially. <laughs> and she just kind of hates kids. She's kind of like uh, like unironically, uncutely, just like ah, fucking children suck. Why did I take this job? Oh yeah, a lot of money, but not enough money to do like the three jobs that they did not tell me I was doing when I thought I was only signing up for one of these jobs. But the money's so goddamn good, and also I'm stuck up here, and it sucks. And her name is actually NASA Houston, and that's like taken as a joke, as the kind of joke you would expect it to be. And you come in on this, you come in on this show, and it is. You comment in the show in the first episode where um three where three kids are being or who have won a contest that Deagle ran to um go to to go to this space hotel and like experience it because this is the first this is the first of what you're allowed to believe is not a large amount but of decent amount of space hotels that has been designed explicitly for kids. Like, with children as the main, like, people it's hosting. And so, you meet the three other kids in this thing. You meet Tayo, who we'll get to in a second. You meet Hiroshi, who's a, who's like a young, who's like about, probably the same age as Toya and Konoha. And... All the kids are the same, are in the same, like, preteen to early teen age kind of thing. Um, Hiroshi is, like, a science math, kind of nerdy, over-enthusiastic kid who's, like, enthralled with Toya because Toya is, like, a space child. And also Toya, Toya is the most healthy of Toya and Konoha. So he is kind of constantly forced in front of the camera to, like, read Deagle ad copy the most. Um, also, he happily does it because it means they don't bother Konaha, who is not doing great. And we'll get to that later. Um, Mina, Mina, Mina Misasa, I think, or is her name. And she's Hiroshi's younger sister. Or at least that's how it's po- that's kind of how it's posed. I think that I think she's Hiroshi's. Oh, actually, she's Hiroshi's older sister. I think. Um, but she is like a budding social media obsessed tween girl. So pretty standard. And with her is where you get this. Actually, with Toya originally, you get the first like weird thing they decide on of being a future thing. Is that you don't so much have cell phones anymore as you have an implant in the back of your hand. And it creates a like cell phone interface that you wear like a fingerless glove. And she is constantly using her little AI drone named Selfie to stream to like a almost TikTok like um or, or better yet, Instagram, actually TikTok is perfect. Almost a, like, almost a TikTok-like or Instagram Live-like 
um, social media app, and she's got like thirty million followers or something. Toya, as so like as an orbital child, essentially has like billions of followers. And then you have Tayo. Tayo is a like you question whether he's self deputized or not, but he's a deputized like white hack authorized white hat hacker for um UN two, which is the like international like human rights organization in this thing. And he ultimately comes to the um, space station to arrest to arrest Toya because Toya is screwing around with AIs. So here's where I'm gonna vault forward in the like information the show gives you in a little bit, um, kind of because the reason why Toya is screwing with AIs is he's trying to remove what's called the intelligent limiter on his little like on this little ball that. On this little, like, black, round, Death Star-looking ball droid that... Android... Or droid that he has that follows him around. That's, like, his... That's, like, his droid personal assistant. And... Um... The, the reason why he's doing that is because... Since 7... All... AIs have had what's called an intelligence limiter. And... That's because 7 by most people's standards, just kind of went insane and became what they call lunatic. And lunatic is this, like, insanely bizarre, ultra-conceptual, super-intelligent um, AI that threatened to, that essentially threatened to destroy the world. And... Ultimately, Seven died. Like, the artificial intelligence shut its... Died. It's the, it's the way they refer to it. And it left it... It left humanity with what's called the Seven Poem. And you hear specifically NASA talk about the Seven Poem. Uh, more than anyone else, really. And that becomes a plot point when you find out what you find out about NASA, which I'll get to. But... The reason why Toya is trying to release the intelligence limiter is because he's trying to get to Lunatic. Because what he wants to get to ultimately, he wants to get to be able to fix his implant and Konoha's implant. Because the implants were supposed to dissolve at a certain point. But they haven't. So they so as these kids continue to grow, they continue to cause both of them problems. Konaham significantly more than Toya. And this is led to this has led to the death of the other eight orbit of the other eight children born in space. Because their implant didn't dissolve properly and they had like brain hardening and nightmare and nightmare problems. Toya is trying to get past the intelligent limiter so he can have an AI that will figure out this problem and repair the and and also repair the implants so him and Konoha can just you know 
live their lives, especially Kona, because he very clearly cares a lot for it. You're not led to believe... And that's something I appreciate about this, about this show, is... There's a kind of love, there's a kind of caring, there's a kind of relationship that is easily mistaken for I love this girl or I love this person when really what it is is I have a closeness to this person I can't have with other people. And I understand that really well because I am a disabled cancer survivor and I have met a couple other disabled cancer survivors who I really get along well with and our disabilities are close enough where it feels like we know each other in a way that other people don't can't know us. Like we know the struggle of like doing something with one hand or something like that. But this show kind of goes out of its way to say, like, they're not necessarily in love, but they need each other in a way that's really significant because they're the only pe- they're the only two people in their particular predicament in the world. So it, we're, it, if one dies or goes or whatever, the other is left completely alone. And doesn't have anyone to share the kind of melancholy of being a preteen kid stuck on the International Space Station with no way down or out. And so you're presented with this dynamic. You're presented with the idea that Toya kind of hates people from Earth. He doesn't really hate people from Earth. He he doesn't have a whole lot of respect for them. And the reason why he doesn't have a whole lot of respect for them is really twofold. Firstfold, he sees them as limiting um, AI intelligence because they don't want what um, Seven wanted, which was ultimately, to kill off, like, 36% of humanity so that the rest of humanity could survive. And he also doesn't like them because he doesn't under... He doesn't... And he said this later in the show. He doesn't really comprehend what that means. What He, under, he knows the math of it. The math of... 30 is not 70. 30 is the minority amount of humans that on Earth, which I won't be included in because I'm up here, need to die so humanity can go on living. And this... This show does a really good job of showing the flaws in the like mathematical arguments that people make in terms of like global warming in terms of pollute in terms of global warming essentially and it has this real effect on you because 
it shows these it shows these facts hitting these little kids, hitting these young kids. And at first, you see a kid like Toya react like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is this is what we need to do." Like thirty six percent of people just need to die. And then you see a kid like Toya, like like Tayu, who is completely in the opposite direction. Who's like very governmentally brainwashed, thinks he's doing the right thing. Until he starts to understand, I don't think Toya's right, but I don't, but I know I'm not right either, and Toya is in the opposite direction of me. So let's try that. And you, ha- you also have um, Hiroshi, who's just kind of like bright-eyed, but has half a brain, and like ask questions like, "Why?" I don't think 36% of people need to die. Like, that makes no sense to me. Like, it makes mathematical sense, but it doesn't make moral sense. And what this show ends up being about is it ends up being about... Ends up being about the potential of human technology, but the limits of human technology. So, later... So... By the end of the show, we have full, we've, like, entered full ghost in the shell territory. We've entered full, like, people full dot, full consciousness diving into AI asteroids kind of thing. Um, it, actually, that, that exact scenario, if I'm honest. And what they're trying to do by the end of the show is they're trying to convince a, like, regenerated version of Seven that, like, Humanity doesn't need to die for this. There is some other solution that will fix all this. And ultimately, there is a solution that gets that gets everybody what they want and need. But... The kind, there's a kind of hopefulness, a kind of look at... A kind of look at technology and the possibilities of technology and the like pervasiveness of technology that is honest and unafraid and critical of people's fear of it and people young and old because the kind of stand-in for the world for the world's What's the best word for it? For the world's fears about what will happen if AIs are allowed to kind of run rampant is the character Taiyu. Because he is, uh, like like I said, he's basically a deputized white hat hacker from UN2. And as soon as he finds out that Toya is screwing around with the intelligent limiter on his um, little android thing... He's like, gotta take that thing in, gotta arrest you, gotta, like, bring this thing back to Earth and smash it with a hammer. The whole nine. And when Toya tells him, like, I'm doing this for a reason, this is why I want to do this, he thinks, and at this point he's met Konoha, he doesn't take that into consideration. He just said, nope, AIs with too much intelligence, bad. That's the rules, buddy. Sorry, I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. 
and in reality, like, the, like, Doom Days, I'm sorry I can't do that for you, Dave, kind of, like, nightmare scenario of, like, um, of AI could happen. But the opposite could happen, too. What the And what this show does so well is it has this conversation about the hills and valleys of technology and specifically AI. And it does it using a cast of characters in the form of the children, of the children who, who are in the show, who are pretty bright-eyed and pretty devoid of the real fear that has been kind of stirred up around AI tech even now. Like, you listen to, you listen to Elon Musk and he said AI is going to kill everybody. Also, you know, my car can drive itself. You listen to lots of people about AI and there's like this doom and gloomism that happens. And as an abstract, give you an idea. If you listen to a lot of people about the economy, it, the economy can be doing very badly. Like the job market can be all screwed up. There can be massive amounts of inflation. Nobody can find enough workers. If this sounds familiar to you, <laughs> my apologies for being in America when it's real weird. Um, but the other truth about the economy and about all those facts is when the economy is at its lowest is when the people who are lowest in the social order of things can have an opportunity to grab on to the to the very bottom rungs of the ladder and start climbing. You know, when, when one of the criticisms of the last financial crisis before the one we just had, because we have one of these every decade or so, apparently, um, was that they didn't let the economy languish for long enough for people of color and disadvantaged people to find their way into it in a seamless way. That ultimately does happen. If the economy is being pumped full of cash, there's an amount of time you can do that where it'll, it helps everyone, not just the people who are doing okay before it all went bad. And... Everybody's so worried about the consequences of just pumping cash into an economy. They don't think about the benefits. They don't think about the fact that, like, you know, a slight friend of the show got himself a computer to record his podcast and YouTube channel on because people were sending out whole ass checks of money and he got a huge amount of money. What does that mean? Is it means that he now has a computer he can use. That's a huge deal. <laughs> you know, it, and that's not nothing. But there, and there are bad consequences to that. What this show does, what Orbital Children does, is it 
sits it, it sits there with it sits there with the characters and it forces them to sit there with the pros and cons of everything that's happening all the time in terms of the AI of it all. And at the point at which they're diving into a comet to like talk to it, they're convincing the comet, like, hey, don't need to kill everybody. You like we need to teach you some moral some moral grounding for the decisions that you're making because the the, the end goal you're trying to get to is right. But the way you're getting to it is wrong. And just as a total spoiler, so seriously, total spoiler, what ends up happening is the comet ends up veering in a path that allows it to break up and melt and cools and cools the whole the entire Earth's temperature by about one degree, buying a couple more years for humanity to move from the earth to space colonies essentially and it also the like footage that um mina ends up putting out convinces people to move to space in droves and leave the earth in droves giving the earth a less taxing population of humanity to account to like have to deal with which means the earth gets better in the same way that interestingly nature kind of sprang back a lot during the pandemic when there were less people straight up abusing just like the raw earth because they were at home being afraid of the air that wanted to kill them go figure and I just this, mo- this show really swings for the fences, and it really, it both takes the time it needs, but it doesn't feel that the urge to drag that out in the way that something like um, Pacific Rim the Black definitely does. There's no reason that Pacific Rim the Black dra- had to drag out the story past the first season, other than the fact that it's a Netflix show, and they typically get two seasons, and that as a and that resulted in a worse paced, worse told, worse conceptualized story than something like Orbital Children, that is clearly coming from people who know technology. If you've ever seen um, Denicoil, it Denicoil has the blueprint for AR VR before like HoloLens, Magic Leap, or um, what's it called? Um, Oculus ever got their f- brains around the game. Denicoil's got it. Like, Denicoil's got the social aspect, the like recreational aspect, the whole nine. It it's wild. Like, go watch that show on Netflix. Seriously. Um, but it just... It's really interesting to see something so creative, so thoughtful about a single topic, with something so strong to say, and, like, 
that dealing with very real subject matter that gets a wider release because the content machine needs more food, baby. <laughs> and that that's really like that's really what amazed me about this show is like and kind of what amazes people about a lot of the really good things. It's like the thing that we all forget about all the like content houses I'm going to call them, the streaming services, is they have to produce things worth paying for. And as they start to charge us more and more, those things have to be better and better. Like, you can't... You need something as kind of like... stunning in its way as BoJack Horseman to justify telling someone now spend $15 on this, please. You need an orbital children to tell someone like, oh, you want to watch the best anime in the world. You want to watch some of the best anime out there. Then you're going to have to give us 15 bucks. We, You done with orbital children? Have you seen Super Crooks yet? I did a episode of Super Crooks. That thing of the, the thing of the fucking... Super villain movie mashup with Ocean's Eleven, and it's incredible. Go, you can go listen to the episode I did on it in the feed, and uh, go watch the, go watch that show on Netflix too. It's goddamn great. But on that note, if you like the podcast, unless I go totally insane, the new episodes come out every Thursday and Sunday. Um, Thursday is like this is about an individual show or property, and Sunday is. A met more metatextual show about um, the fandom things I'm thinking about around anime, the industry, that kind of thing. So um, until next time, I've been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio, and I'll talk to you on Sunday. ここも同時期人間が居られない場所になったかもしれないくらい。お前たちを必ず生かして地球に返してやる。行くぞ。これはヒートされた
皆さんのお役に立つことができましたでしょうか